I invite you to take your Bibles, if you have one, or take one from the pew in front of you and turn with me to Hebrews, near the end of the New Testament, chapter 2, and I want to read with you verses 9 through 13. Hebrews 2, we'll start at verse 9. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, namely God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation, namely Jesus, through sufferings. Come back. That's a very complex sentence and we will come back to it. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. From which, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, and he quotes Psalm 22, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. Father, as I attempt to unfold some of this glorious passage of Scripture, I ask for your help again. I ask for help for me, that I would be faithful to your word, that I would be filled with your spirit, and I ask for your help for the listeners, that there would be a heart and a mind given to attend to the greatness of our salvation. And I ask that you would protect us from that soaring, satanic word plucker who tries to steal the seed off the path and fly away with it and leave us thinking about nothing but this afternoon's business. Lord, draw near and do a supernatural work of transformation and salvation in this room, I ask In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let me try to uh, bring us all up to speed in where we are in the flow of thought in the book of Hebrews here. In chapter 1, the main point was Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is worshipped by angels because Jesus is God. Jesus is the, the final decisive Word spoken by God the Father into these last days. Chapter 1, verse 2. And then to celebrate this Jesus, <clears throat> he piles up glories of Jesus. He says he was the heir of all things. Through him all things were made. <clears throat> He's the radiance of the glory of the Father. He's the exact representation of the Father's nature. 
He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He reigns there until he puts all of his enemies under his feet and he disperses and uh, sends out angels to do his bidding all over the world. So he celebrates in chapter one the greatness of the son who is the last word to the world. And then when he gets to chapter two, on the basis of that celebration of the greatness of the word and the savior, he says, don't neglect this great salvation. Give heed to this great word. Don't drift away from this word. And then when he gets to verse five of chapter two, he starts to unpack the greatness of the salvation that we are not to neglect, according to verse 3. And the way he approaches it, and this is important because it carries right on through today's text, the way he approaches it is by quoting Psalm 8, which uh, says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou hast made him a little less than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. And so he says, our great salvation is that human beings are one day to be crowned with glory and honor and rule under God the whole creation, everything put under our feet. And then he's very sober, realistic, not naive when he gets to verse 8. And at the end he says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. We die. We suffer. All things are not yet subjected to humankind like Psalm 8 says they will be someday. So what's the answer? How is this a great salvation? If Psalm 8 holds out glory and majesty and honor and dominion for human beings, and what we see is cancer and arthritis and paralysis and blindness and depression and aging and death. So where's the great salvation? Thank you. Promised in Psalm 8. And his answer is verse 9. We don't see everything yet subjected to man, his glory, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, the man, the second Adam. We see him made for a little while lower among us, people, human beings. And because of the suffering of death, now he's crowned with glory and honor. Those words taken right out of Psalm 8. He's gone ahead as the forerunner, the captain, the author into glory that by the grace of God he might taste death for every man and bring with him those who are his. Now the reason I call him a forerunner or in your bulletin I call him a captain, that's what one of the versions say, is because of the phrase in verse 10. Leading many sons to glory. Let's read verse 10. For it was fitting for him... God the Father, for whom and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. That's what he was doing in sending Jesus. To suffer, die, and be glorified. He was leading, bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting in doing that 
to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, there are a lot of important things in that verse. That verse could keep us for months. What an amazing, rich verse, verse 10 is. But what I want to focus on right away is this phrase, God is bringing many sons to glory. The reason that's important is because it connects way back up with verse 7 where he quotes Psalm 8 to say that the destiny of human beings is glory, honor, dominion over the creation under God alongside Jesus Christ. That's your destiny. That's your goal. Now, we don't yet see that the case. Human beings suffer. They die. But what we do see is Jesus made a human for a little while, breaking into death, out of death, seated on a glorious throne where we will one day join him unspeakably, according to Revelation 3, on his throne. And in doing that, what is he doing? Verse 10, he is leading or bringing many sons with him to glory. So the reason the son assumed human flesh is so that Psalm 8, which seemed to be aborting, would be fulfilled in the first man out of the grave and he would bring others with him. That's the flow. That's what's going on here. This is our great salvation. When he says in verse 3, Beware lest you neglect your great salvation. This is what he has in mind. This great coming of the Son into humanity, breaking through death, going into the Father's presence, being crowned with glory and honor, and bringing with him many sons and daughters to glory. So that Psalm 8 will have a fulfillment. It, it will be fulfilled. It is a great salvation for several reasons. We've seen them. It's great because there's a great destiny. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more paralysis. There will be no more blindness. There will be no more arthritis. There will be no more heart disease. There will be no more depression. There will be no more violence or conflict anymore. For the former things will have passed away. Psalm 8 will be fulfilled. The glory that Jesus now enjoys at his Father's right hand will become our glory as well. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And Psalm 8 will be true. As you and I, vice regents, as it were, rule the universe alongside our older brother, Jesus Christ. That's coming that is our great salvation. And it's a great salvation, secondly, not just because of our goal, our destiny, but because of our Savior. He is a great Savior. His glory is our ultimate destiny. We share in the glory that He has won by His death and resurrection. And He was the Son of God coming to rescue us. No mere human could have done what Jesus Christ did. So our salvation is great because He's a forerunner. God and his goal is the glory of God. Therefore, verse 3, therefore, we're always coming back to the therefores. Don't neglect this great salvation. Don't neglect it. One of the great reasons for weakness in the American evangelical mainline churches is neglect of the greatness of our salvation. Ask yourself how much mental energy do you expend 
to occupy yourself with the greatness of your salvation. Compared to the energy you expend on, say, your finances or housing or job. There is a colossal neglect of the greatness of our salvation in the church, not to mention outside the church. Well, what would be the opposite of neglect? Let me list off for you answers from the book of Hebrews. In chapter 2, verse 1, it is paying close attention to what we've heard. In chapter 3, verse 1, it is consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of your confession. In chapter 3, verse 12, it is take care lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, but exhort one another every day. In chapter 4, verse 16, it is drawing near to the throne of grace to get help from Jesus. In chapter 10, verse 23, it is holding fast our confession without wavering. In chapter 12, verse 1, it is running the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation. And in chapter 12, verse 25, it is not refusing him who speaks from heaven. Not neglecting is the mental, spiritual, emotional engagement with God to behold, to taste, to see, to embrace Him in His greatness and all that He wrought for us. To ponder it, to think on it, and not neglect it. My dad and I were coin collectors when I was growing up. There was a series, a sequence of years. I can't remember the exact age. We were coin collectors. I wonder how many have ever been coin collectors. There, I haven't looked at the books for a long time, but there used to be these fold-open blue books. Little holes, dates, place of minting. Push the coin in. If you get a book full, you got a big deal. Hundreds of dollars it's probably worth. So my dad is a traveling evangelist. He'd go away and he'd talk to coin collectors and he'd save all his coins and he'd bring them home. And he and I would sit down together and look at them. And we'd look them up in the book and see, is this good, excellent, or is this fair? And we'd push him in the book and we'd try to finish books. And then something happened. I, could, I cannot tell you what happened. We just started to not do it. And there were a few spurts in the years after that of interest and we go down in the bottom shelf where there has a little door and we push the door and there they were. We'd pull one out and do it a little bit and put it back and longer months would pass. And Today, I don't have a clue where those books are and they're worth thousands of dollars. And that's the way many people experience the Christian faith. There's this spurt there's this engagement. There's this flowering of apparent zeal and interest. And then weeks pass and no prayer, no meditation on the word. It's easy to skip worship. The lake home really needs some attention. And there's good fellowship there. And the glory of God is proclaimed in the sunshine. And little by little, you wake up one day and it's over. It's over. It's not only neglected, it's forgotten and you're cold 
And there may be no return, according to Hebrews 12. Maybe. And that's what this book is written to help not happen. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. It is a great salvation. It's 10,000 times more great than dozens of full blue coin books that are now probably worth thousands of dollars because every year for years we got a mint collection that were never circulated. So hidden away somewhere in my dad's basement probably, I don't know, are thousands of dollars worth of coins. But this salvation is worth 10,000 times more than that. And this author is pleading with us, don't neglect a great salvation. He writes this book to model for us and to help us copy him in meditating on the greatness of salvation. If you say, what is the book of Hebrews? The book of Hebrews is one extended effort not to neglect the greatness of salvation. It is one long meditation on the magnificence of Jesus Christ and what he has wrought through his death and resurrection for you and me. So if you want to know how do you not neglect your great salvation, let the book of Hebrews model for you how not to neglect your great salvation. That's what he's doing here. Now, how is he doing it this morning? Let's go back now and just take a few specifics in the time we have left. Look at verse 10 again. Connect it now with verse 9. At the end of verse 9, he says that Christ tasted death for us. And now comes an explanation or a reason in this weighty, weighty verse. For it was fitting. I'm going to come back to that word. That's a surprising word. That God acts in fit ways. So, hmm, that's odd. I mean, God's God, right? He's, he acts and what he acts is fit. So what's this declaring that God is acting in a fitting way? For it was fitting for him, for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. That's our great salvation. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting to perfect the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, through sufferings. I think it's amazing that this writer should say God acted in a fitting way. Or it is fitting that he acted the way he acted. Because to me, I'm, I'm prone to simply say, look, you don't probe into whether what God has done is fitting. God did it. That's God. You don't ask that question. Is it fitting that God did it that way? But this writer evidently thinks it's okay to ask that question. Is this a, a fitting way to do salvation? And you know why he does that? Because it's one way of not neglecting your great salvation. It's one way of saying, is it really great, God? Is it really great the way you did it? Show me that the way you did it is really great. 
show me that the way you did it is especially in ways that my human brain may not even jump to fitting for you to do it that way. I think that's what's going on here. The fittingness that he's talking about at the beginning of verse 10 is a way of saying, here's how not to neglect the greatness of your salvation. Here's how to get in and start asking the questions. Why did he do it this way? It's okay to ask God, why did you do it this way? Why the death of Jesus? Why is it fitting that the author of salvation, as he leads many sons to glory, why is it fitting that he be perfected, and what does that mean, through sufferings? This writer is bold to ask God that question. Why is that fitting? And we are asking it right now. And I'm going to use the rest of my time to give you three reasons why it is fitting for Jesus to lead to glory, you and me, through being perfected by sufferings. Why is that fitting? Number one. Now, let me preface this. That these are not the only three reasons why it's fitting. Elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, you could pile up several more reasons why it's fitting. So don't, when we're done with these three, say, oh, he didn't mention the most obvious one. Because I'm not going to mention the most obvious one. You can decide what the most obvious one is. I'm going to mention the ones that are in this text. Okay? Because we got lots more to do in Hebrews and we don't have to say everything at once. All right. Number one, here's the reason why, first reason why it is fitting that the Son of God be perfected through sufferings in bringing many sons to glory. To answer the question, we need to ask, what does it mean he was perfected? That's a troubling word, right? Perfected? You mean he was imperfect and then he got perfected through sufferings. So we got an imperfect son of God, Jesus, and he gets perfected through sufferings. Is that the way to understand perfected? The main problem with that is the book of Hebrews, more than any other book in the New Testament, insists on the sinlessness of Jesus from the word go. Chapter 4, verse 16, he was tempted like we are yet without sin. Chapter 9, verse 14, he presented himself as a lamb without blemish. Chapter 7, verse 24, he uh, was offered up to God as one who was separated from sinners. So three times at least, that's more than any other book in the New Testament, Jesus is declared to be sinless, perfect. So what does it mean that he was perfected through sufferings? And the answer is given in chapter 5. You want to turn there with me? You can. Chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. I love the way the Bible interprets the Bible. The Bible is the answer to the Bible. If you have problems in one part of the Bible, hang on. The Lord will give you light in other parts of the Bible. Let's read verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And now that's interpreted for us. And having been made perfect, so learning obedience and being made perfect are mutually interpreting. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. 
So my interpretation of becoming perfect means, or is, learning obedience through what he suffered. Now that does not mean he was disobedient and then he got spanked by suffering and turned into an obedient son. What it means is this. Jesus Christ came into the world as a human being untested through suffering. He'd never known a moment of suffering in all eternity. Would he obey under sufferings? Would he hold true? Would he be a man of faith? Would he rest in his father? Would he be perfected in the sense that he proves through suffering he is whole, he is complete? It isn't that he was defective and became perfect, but that he was untested and became perfect. That's the key here. And it is so important. And the reason it's important is because seeing this answers the question of why it was fitting for him to suffer. Here's the reason. In leading many sons to glory, the captain and the forerunner needed to experience what we experience and succeed where we failed. We came into the world, were tested and failed over and over. We just sang it. What did that, what did one of those verses say? Tested, tried, and often failing. And when I sang that this morning, I just smiled real big and I said, never Jesus. Never Jesus. Tested, tried, and never failing. Tested, tried, and never failing. So he's our forerunner in the sense that he came in, he took our nature upon him, everything minus sin, tempted in every point like as we are, and yet resisting right up to the end, breaking through sinlessly through death into glory. And it was so fitting then that one like that would lead us to glory, that he would take on our sufferings, that he would be tested and tried like we are and never fail, so that now we in him will join him in glory. So the first reason for why it's so fitting that our captain, our forerunner, is perfected through sufferings is that he needed to succeed at what we failed at, namely obedience through trial. And he did by faith in his heavenly Father. Here's reason number two. It is fitting for Jesus to be perfected through suffering and lead many sons to glory because, this is a little bit difficult, hang on, see if you can get this, it is unspeakably, marvelously, the will of God, the creator of all things, it is the will of God to have a family in which the brothers and sisters, the children, are so united, so empathetically united, so sympathetically united, so deeply, personally, lovingly united that the unity would be jeopardized if only one did not experience the suffering that every other one experienced. In other words, a second reason for why it's fitting for Jesus to be perfected through sufferings is because he wants to be a good older brother. Now, where do I get that from this text? 
I get it from the connection between verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says that it's fitting for God to bring many of us to glory through sufferings, many sons, family members, siblings, to glory through the sufferings of his son with a capital S. So you got little sons and daughters and one big older son. Now, look at verse 11 and the reason, the support that's given for that statement. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, the brothers and sisters that he's leading to glory, are all from one. Now you see Father, at least if you have NASB, is in italics. If you got NIV, it's not in italics. It's not in the original. It just says from one. Might mean Father. Might mean one human nature. The point is, there is a profound unity between the sanctifier, Jesus, and the sanctified, us. And that unity is given as the ground for why it's fitting for the Son to be perfected through sufferings. That's the, that's the link between 10 and 11. And then it supports it by simply quoting Psalm 22 where Jesus cries out and says, I will proclaim thy name, O God, to my brethren. So when this writer read that, and he knew that Jesus had quoted Psalm 22 to apply to himself, when he read it, he just soared and said, I'm his brother. I'm his brother. I mean, he just couldn't get over it that in in coming into humanity and leading many sons with a little s to glory, he was aligning himself in a family and he was creating a family and evidently it is fitting that the older brother not get off scot-free. What kind of fellowship is that? Big brother, come on now, come on little brother, say, yeah, but you never. And he says, oh yes, I did. You don't ever have to have that breach in the fellowship between the big older brother son with a capital S and all of us sons and daughters down here with little S, little D saying, yeah, but he never knew what, what it was to suffer like we had to suffer. So what kind of fellowship can we have? There's something fitting, fitting in the mind of our God. Let this minister to you right now about the nature of God. The nature of God, that God, 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 the the maker of all things and the sustainer of the universe regards it as fitting that you have an older brother who can empathize with every weakness. There's something that tells you about God. That's reason number two. That is fitting. Last one. Number three. This is the best of all. At least I like it best of all. I like all of them. It is fitting that Jesus be perfected through sufferings in leading many sons to glory. It's fitting because the sufferings of Jesus magnify the worth of God more than anything else. Now, why? Where, that sounds like it comes out of John Piper's theology rather than out of the text, which is something I'm very afraid of doing. 
And so I want to show you and see whether you see what I see in this text. Look at verse 10 very carefully. For it was fitting for him, that's God the Father, for whom are all things. Now just stop right there and let that hit you. The fittingness of the sufferings of the Son of God flows from God being a kind of God for whom are all things. Let me say that again. This is very important. What makes the suffering of the Son of God fitting as He leads many sons to glory is that the God who is designing that is the kind of God for whom are all things. What's that mean? For whom are all things? It means... Don't let me read anything in here now. You tell me. It means everything exists. You exist. I exist. Salvation exists. Jesus exists to call attention to God. To call attention to the glory of God. Not to improve upon God. I don't improve upon God. My salvation doesn't improve upon God. It gets attention for the unimprovability of God. Everything is for God. So... God, pondering how to save the human race, says, It will be fitting if I save them in a way that is for me. That's what's in that phrase. For whom are all things. Now, get this. When Jesus suffered, evidently, it showed the glory of God. Why? If you read the rest of the book of Hebrews, this is, I love this book. I can almost cry over this book because as you read the rest of the book of Hebrews, what you find is that at the horizontal level, what enables you to glorify God is by suffering with the confidence that glory is coming. You see it over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 32. They suffered and rejoiced over the plundering of their property because they looked to the reward of the glory. Chapter 11, verse 24. Moses suffered and took upon himself the sin of the people and suffered because he looked to the reward of the glory. Chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Don't be in love with money. Be radically risk-taking because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. My glory will be your portion. Chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. The one who sanctifies you went outside the city to suffer for you. Let us go with him outside the city because we look for a city whose builder and maker is God beyond this world. What sustains Christians in glorifying God in the book of Hebrews is the hope of glory. So when you get to chapter 12, and Jesus says, or it says about Jesus, He endured the cross, despising the shame, which is like, He's not ashamed to call His brethren here, despising the shame for the joy that was set before Him, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The joy of what? What joy sustained Him through the cross? 
the joy of sitting in the glory of his father, surrounded by many sons and daughters, worshiping the king of glory. That's what sustained him, which is why the sufferings of Jesus magnify the glory of God. The reason the sufferings of Jesus magnify the glory of God and show that everything is for the glory of God is because what sustained Jesus through suffering was the worth of the glory he was aiming for and bringing people to. Which is the end of my sermon now. Here we are. The most precious, the most glorious, the most wonderful thing about our great salvation and the reason we should not neglect it is because our salvation is salvation for the glory of our great God. From beginning to end is God in this great salvation. So I plead with you, as I will plead with you as long as we're in the book of Hebrews, don't neglect this great salvation. If you're an unbeliever in this room right now, would you please not neglect this great salvation? The reason you are here this morning, mark this, we're done, we'll leave in two minutes. The reason you're here this morning is because God is moving in your life to get you to hear his invitation to you to believe this. That's why you're here, to rest in this. And I invite you to receive it, to believe it, to trust Jesus Christ, to embrace him as Savior and Lord. I know there are unbelievers in this room. You can't have a group this big together without some being here. I'm going to be here at the front. Other prayer teams will be here at the front. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you about any of those things. And believer, don't neglect this great salvation. Don't do this coin collecting thing. Don't do that. Be vigilant. Take what you've seen. Let Hebrews model for you how to meditate upon the glory of your great salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven. Come by your Holy Spirit and finish the work now of salvation in this room. Win for yourself believers from those who came skeptics. May they leave lovers of Jesus. Strengthen the saints. Lord, lift fear, lift discouragement, lift weariness. Magnify your glory through the recollection that Jesus Christ came into the world to suffer that we might be free. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.